Chris, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Can't complain too much. Well, I feel you. But hey, we should um, we should talk about this guest that we interviewed previously. We we need to give him a, I think a proper introduction since it is our hashtag academic series, which is focused on hacks for academics. And while this guest is important, he sadly, and not sadly for him, but sadly for the whole world, didn't have the kind of specific advice Mm. that we've been looking for in some of these interviews. But even though there might not be specific advice, uh, another goal of academics is to talk about things we don't talk about and should talk about and need to talk about. Uh, and I, I think that's exactly what this interview is, is it's a conversation starter because there aren't any good answers. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, and I sort of thought about that afterward, which is why I messaged you and I said, hey, you know, we interviewed Adam Johnson, who was at UNC Charlotte last year. He's now a doctoral student at UT San Antonio. Um, the last day, as you'll hear in the following interview of his class last semester, a shooter came into his classroom and killed two of his students. And our question for advice was, what do we do about this? And his answer was the same as the rest of ours, which is, I don't know. Yeah, that, you know, there's no real way one can prepare. Uh, And, you know, having discussions with students about a plan at the beginning of a semester, for example, that thing would just get tossed out the window at any moment such a circumstance would arise. Exactly. When I thought about it, because I kind of didn't really know how to set up the questions for him. But after doing the interview... And thinking about it, I wanted to come back and, and do this intro and, and sort of put this out there. This is a podcast episode about a topic that we need to be not just thinking about, but we, we do need to be talking about it with our colleagues and our students. And as we come up with ideas, we should start sharing them because this is sadly shootings in the classroom is an epidemic. And what we used to think was a rare event that happened to someone us is now happening to people we know or to us. The motivation for this interview actually came from an experience that you recently went through, Chris, at a high school football game. Do you want to really briefly, because I know you talk about it in the interview, but that was the experience that led you to want to to interview Adam. Yeah, because uh, we all in the field knew who he was and knew when the event happened and it was shocking, but it wasn't like I wanted to reach right out and interview someone who had a shooting in their classroom. But it was when I was at a high school football game uh, for my kid's school and there was a threat or a fear of a shooter being arrested or of a gun being present that everyone in the stadium uh, panicked. And they had obviously, the students had obviously been trained in school what to do if there was an active shooter in school, but no one had been trained on what to do, and especially the parents and the families, on what to do if there was a shooter at a football game. So we all ran towards the only exit available, and if there had been a shooter, it would have been like shooting fish in a barrel. It was Mm -hmm. not only frightening, but a bunch of the kids had panic attacks. So there were injuries. They went to the hospital. It, It was evident that our cultural 
climate has created not just Climbed fear. Them. Yeah. But yeah. So yeah, primed them for that sort of reaction. And that's another thing that we hit on with uh, Adam is the lasting effects. And I'm exactly. sure the students at that game, even though it wasn't an actual active shooter situation, are having you know, extreme distress well after the fact. And um, after the interview, I was watching television last night with my family, and I don't know if you've seen this, but sandyhook.org has a great commercial that they're playing over and over again. But every time I saw it, it, it gave me, I had the same response that I did in parts talking to Adam yesterday, where I felt like I was going to start crying watching that girl cry. So I think having the conversation and continuing to remember how tragic this is and not become immune to the impact that it's having on us is important. Yeah. All right. We're the Sausage of Science. Um, Chris. Kara. We're going to talk to Adam Johnson in just a sec. So welcome to the Sausage of Science, Adam. I'm Chris, as you probably know, and this is Kara, as you probably also figured out. How are you? Doing well. Well, we want to thank you for joining us today. This is going to be, uh, for obvious reasons, that you obviously are are familiar with a heavier episode than what we typically have now everybody's research is important we tend to joke around but there'll probably be less joking today as will become apparent to everyone as we start talking but before we launch into the the topic that we we asked you on about and you're part of by the way the new academics series which is hacks for academics uh, the focus is how to succeed and how to navigate academia and some of the topics are things that we, we wouldn't normally write about in our research or that aren't even necessarily brought up. But we do start podcast interviews by asking essentially how the sausage is made for people. In other words, how does the anthropologist or the researcher who we're talking to, how have they found their way to the point they are today? And we want to know about your life and your story as well. So tell us about you. I'm Adam Johnson. I'm from a rural town in the middle of North Carolina. I grew up on a farm. I mean, I, I played baseball and soccer, but read comic books and played video games and stuff. So I was kind of an oddball because I, I always like to be on both sides of the fence, whether it was being an, an athlete and a, a nerd all at the same time. I love science. And in high school, I started working as a, I'm a freelance herpetologist for the state of North Carolina, so I collect reptile and amphibian demographics in Raven Rock State Park and send those off to the state. Sometimes the state would send us some demographic data that they want to collect. We collect a certain number of samples, weigh, measure, look for anything interesting, and send those reports off. What sort of credentials do you need to be a freelance herpetologist? I have never heard this before, and that is fascinating. A white country boy? I don't know. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I was. And my, uh, the partner that I worked with also was that we were, I mean, we were teenagers from the boonies, basically. Huh. We knew people and uh, was friends with a lot of the people at Raven Rock State Park. And they're like, oh, we have these projects that they send in. Hmm. Uh, we need data collected. Would you be willing to do this? We'll pay, uh, the state will pay you based on how many samples you collect or what projects you give us data on and stuff. Sorry, continue. I've just never heard of the, the job freelance herpetologist, and I'm fascinated now. <laughs> I did it through, I think, my first year in college, and so probably until 2003 or 2004. I probably started in 2001, and it, it was a few years. And it, was, it was quite fun because we got to, like, trounce around in the state park to places that nobody ever sees and collect, you know, snakes and 
uh, and frogs and salamanders and stuff, which is really, really fun and really cool. Uh, got me out of the house, which is nice. Hmm. Amateur naturalism is an area that a lot of folks get into science. And, and one of the reasons, you know, uh, here at Alabama, our most famous alum is E.O. Wilson. And he has talked about being that kid. Yeah, exa- exactly. And I mean, that it all went back to my love of animals and stuff and, and wanting to be out in nature and just experiencing the world as it is. So you're a doctoral student. You just started your doctoral program in anthropology. What led you from that to anthropology? So I, well, so I went to college, initially went in, I think, for a semester in criminal justice, was dissatisfied with that, uh, switched to psychology, dissatisfied with that, and eventually switched to evolutionary biology. And I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. I loved it. I learned a lot, especially because like, like understanding um, ecosystems and stuff was pretty easy, came really easy to me. But getting into thinking about genetics, thinking about more broad uh, ecological relationship was really amazing to me and thinking about it diachronically just over time. But in biology at the time at East Carolina University where I was, it was very genetics heavy and every course it just hammered in. The only thing that's ever mattered about anything ever is genes. And I was like, my dad died, you know, two days before my 12th birthday. And this was a thought that I had at the time. Uh, And like, there are no genes for that. And yet to me, that's more important. Uh, than whatever genes I do have. And um, so eventually I left school and I had taken a couple of anthropology classes, both with Linda Wolf, who was then the chair of the anthropology department. I moved to California. I worked out there for a few years, uh, moved back to North Carolina and had, a, and had a kid. And I promised that before she turned two years old, I'd be back in school. And I contacted Linda and I was like, hey, you know, I've taken a couple of classes with you. I really love anthropology. I was able to kind of scratch the itch that I thought psychology would, you know, scratch for me. Um, and then I get, I still get to do biology. And then I get to open up a whole new realm of like incorporating ideas about culture and being human uh, into it. And she was like, okay, cool. I'm, uh, I'm going to be emeritus, but I'll, you know, supervise you on a project here as an undergrad. And so I went back uh, and did, uh, did a bachelor's degree in anthropology. Um, supervised by Linda Wolf. Um, it's just super informative for theoretical understanding. It was mm. amazing. And then I also did a philosophy degree while I was there too, which really kind of informed how I moved forward as a scholar, I think, and as a student. Now, I have to apologize because I know I'll just put it out there because we're going to talk about it in a second. But when the shooting in your classroom happened last semester, your name was familiar and I knew we were friends on Twitter, but I'd forgotten why, right? You had reached out because you... I see that you have a lot of tattoos and you're interested in tattooing. What was the research you were doing then or interested in doing then? I was interested in thinking about like immune systems and and potential disease transmission and stuff, Mm. Uh, not just within people, but also like in broader ecological context. And reading your work, um, it wasn't like exactly that, but I saw a lot of overlap between like questions that I was interested in and, and work. And I, th- I think you were ahead of me in thinking along those lines, because I, at the time, thought the project was fizzling out and didn't know how to, how to advise you and, and, and probably didn't, didn't push it hard enough. So you wound up, I guess, staying in North Carolina to do your master's work. And so you were, I guess, a graduate teaching assistant or you were teaching. So I was a TA. Um, I graduated in 2017. I got an adjunct position there the spring of 2017 teaching a science studies class. They kept me on after that as a part-time lecturer. Okay. So as I said in the questions that I sent you, I don't want to re-traumatize you. There was a shooting in your class last semester and some of your students were killed. And we're not here to talk about 
the shooter or that, but you wrote several months later a blog post on toxic white masculinity, and there's an interaction going on between the culture and your direct experience. Just so that our listeners sort of know where we're coming from, I was wondering if you could tell us as much as you're willing or able what happened there. Well, I mean, it was the very last day of classes and the way I had the class structure. It was that science studies class. It was literally the first class I ever taught at the university, but just several semesters later, which is, it was my favorite class to teach. And it was the, the semester structure where the students are in teams and they're responsible for uh, developing a project over the course of the semester um, where they're interrogating some interesting thing within science. So some maybe the giant paradigm shifts in science or uh, questions about like, what do we know? What, what are our limitations of knowledge? Pretty open. Instead of giving the exams, I don't do exams. Everything kind of culminates in uh, this final project and they present it to the class and they can present it however they want. Um, I've had students um, do videos like the one that I was watching when the shooting happened. Some do like live presentations or TED Talk style presentation. I've had a puppet show. Um, I've had a hip hop performance and it's, it's there to, for the students to be creative and to express themselves. Um, whilst still thinking about these interesting uh, ideas in the history of science and, and paradigms in science. So that's what we were doing. We were sitting in the, uh, sitting in the classroom. I was sitting at um, one of the tables next to the podium. The, the layout of the classroom is kind of strange and hard to describe. There's 14 round tables kind of spread out, almost in a linear fashion, slight curve, kind of away from the, uh, the podium. I was sitting at a table next to it, which had no students at it. Given the last day of class, uh, more than half the class didn't show up. There are a couple of teams where nobody showed up at all. Um, a couple of teams who are one, two teams showed up, um, but that were really distressed about getting their projects done because they weren't presenting that day. They were presenting during the final exam period. So I was like, you know, you need to prioritize. If this is something you need to work on, you work on it. You're adults, you can make the decision. So a couple of teams left, and that left probably 40, 45 students left in the class. Um, the first team was presenting. Um, they were presenting. Uh, they were presenting a video presentation. It was quite good. Um, I remember being pretty impressed. It really, kind of cast a wide net for pulling literature. And they're responsible for pr all primary literature and stuff. And they just had a, a really sophisticated, I think, understanding of what they're approaching. And we're kind of into that. We're probably six minutes into the first video. They're supposed to be about ten minutes long. Uh, and from behind me, huge. Uh, loud bang, very short pause, and then like lots and lots and lots of loud bangs. So I stood up, kicked my chair out of the way, basically turned around because I know what a gunshot sounds like. Kind of everything unfolded in front of me, and I don't want to go into details because there are some things that I think uh, I share with some of the people that were in the classroom that is something I think we want to keep between ourselves. But, you know, saw everything kind of unfold in front of me. Uh, and the whole shooting last didn't last more than, I mean, at most 12 seconds. I mean, it was, it happened. I'm not a, like I wasn't even out of the room yet. I had just made it to the door um, when all the shooting stopped and I was kind of ushering students out. I didn't see this part because where the exit we left, it, it's kind of, uh, there are pillars that block where the shooter was standing by that point. He had kind of backed back. He had gotten tackled by one of the students that was killed and he was kind of back behind that pillar then at that point. And, uh, but one of the other students that was there and who was shot said that he, uh, after um, Riley tackled um, the shooter, the shooter just sat on, like laid the gun down and sat on the ground and just waited for the police to get there. Um, they eventually made their way out of the room as well uh, into another another place at, in the university, like where there's like several restaurants and stuff. I was wondering, so we read your, your blog piece about 
you know, toxic masculinity as well as white male fragility. And you've written other blog pieces as well about this experience. And I was wondering if maybe you could talk to that process. Because I mean, obviously this is incredibly traumatic and how you started working through it through various pieces of writing. I wonder if maybe you could connect the dots uh, of those different pieces leading into this piece about uh, toxic masculinity and white male fragility. Yeah, sure. All that really started, I think. Um, so I went after the shooting happened, things started calming down. We were all kind of vanned over to a place interviewed by the police while I was there. Uh, my master's advisor uh, and, and, and close friend, John Marks, as a professor at UNC Charlotte, um, he was like, whenever you're done, come over to the house if you need to be around somebody. And he and his wife, Peter Katz, who's also an anthropology professor, like we sat down, we, we had, I think, like uh, a glass of brandy and we just talked about stuff. And, and John was like emphatic. He's like, you need to write this stuff down. One, this is, a, this is something you don't want to forget. You don't want to forget the details. Um, but two, like this could be useful. One, just helping overall addressing these huge epidemic of gun violence in our country, but also helping me think about and come to terms with what I experienced. And that night I didn't sleep, I went home. And then the next day was pretty crazy, but the next night I slept really well for whatever reason. And I woke up and before having coffee, before doing anything, I walked to, uh, I walked to my office and just started writing mm. uh, that first piece on it. And it was just a stream of consciousness. There's like mm -hmm. headings and stuff in it, but those I put in after the fact where I saw like logical breaks in the story. And I've been just trying to like make sense of like why, not why this happened in particular to, to this class, to these students and to me, but why does this happen more broadly? Why are we seeing it so frequently? And, uh, and I had already been doing some work thinking about race and social consequences of race and social histories that produce issues with race in the United States. And uh, I had done work, my first work as anthropologist studying gender. And my partner is a gender scholar in sociology. And so I was, I was thinking about this idea um, and I was seeing discourse on it that was talking about um, ma uh, toxic masculinity. And I'm like, well, this clearly has something to do with it, but it's not, it's not just toxic masculinity because this is clearly overwhelmingly uh, white men that are carrying this out. And so there's something else going on. And a lot of the, the discourse that I was seeing wasn't taking into account the intersections between multiple kinds of identities and how they could potentially be leading to these kinds of outcomes in, of course, with political and other issues happening at the same time. And so just kind of what you see in the blog and what I use the blog for is a way for me to explore my own ideas. Mm -hmm. I feel like if I put them out where people can read them, I'm holding myself more accountable to them. And so anytime that I've written about it, has been part of this process of trying to come to terms. Also, it's therapy. It's been therapy for me because, I mean, therapists, uh, they're, I think, really good at addressing trauma that people generally experience. But how do you talk about kind of these kinds of trauma? And so every, everything that I write about, have, have written about has been a logical outgrowth of, of trying to engage in these ideas. Um, and so that's how I ended up like, thinking about these intersections between, between like, whiteness in America and being a man or what it, what the ideal of being a man is. As, as Chris started this, uh, this is kind of part of our hackademics where we talk about things that we should talk about but don't talk about. And none of us went into education or academia thinking that either we or our students would need to plan for the exact kind of situation that you went through. But you're seeing calls for that more and more and wondering now that you you, you went through this horrible experience do you have advice on things that we should prepare, our students prepare, or should we prepare 
at all. Can anything actually prepare people for something like this? I think that there are systems that can be put in place at, a, at very big levels to address this. So having like plans in place for like trauma counseling, having plans in place for like how to evacuate students, generally at the university. But in the classroom, there's no planning. You don't make decisions. You're, you act. Mm. Uh, hopefully you act in a moral way. But I, do, I don't think that active shooter training, and I've had to take one for UTSA since coming here, they don't say anything that's useful if you're in the classroom or it's happening. Totally useful if it's happening across campus, but if you're in the room, it doesn't matter because you're not thinking, you're just doing mm -hmm. So have you gotten back into the classroom again? Are you teaching now this semester? Yes and yes. So I was teaching a lot at UNCC. I had five sections and counting two lab sections. Um, wow. Luckily, I like teaching. That's a whole other episode on adjuncting that we need to do, but that's a lot. Yeah. And that was the last day of class. So for that, for UNCC, I was done. But uh, I was also teaching. I picked up a class at the community college. They, they had like a, one of the short semester uh, classes for the second half of the spring. Uh, and they contacted me like, hey, we need somebody to teach this. And I hate myself just enough to have accepted doing it. <laughs> I love teaching at the community college. Students are super duper engaged and stuff. Mm -hmm. like that. I had no problem. So I had one week of teaching after that. And I actually was supposed to teach the, the day the shooting happened. Of course, canceled class. But uh, the next week, there was one class left and I went in. And we were actually, interestingly enough, we had watched the video on toxic masculinity the week before. And we were just kind of wrapping the course up. And so that last day of class was supposed to be us engaging with toxic masculinity. So what do we think are the cause of these? What are the social consequences? What does the future look like thinking about this, you know? And so it was hard to go back in the classroom. And this was a, we met once a week. So it was a three hour class. There was like 20 people in the class. And it took me a solid half the class to like not feel like I was going to start bleeding from my eyes because my anxiety level was so high. Mm -hmm. But I got through it and the students were amazing in terms of like, I emailed them, I'm like, this is what happened. It happened in my class. They were very accommodating for that, um, but still engaged. Like, and I, wa I told them I wanted them to stay engaged with the course material. So they did great. I taught over the summer online. I think I taught uh, that science studies class again online. Then I taught an epidemiology class, mm -hmm. like a historical epidemiology class. And then now I'm a TA at UTSA. So I'm TAing for intro to cultural anthropology class. Uh, and I'm also uh, still teaching at UNC Charlotte um, online. So I'm teaching a class in human sexuality. Uh, actually, in the sociology department, which is amazing because I get to teach sociologists about evolutionary theory and physiology <laughs> and stuff that they've never heard of. And it's, uh, they, uh, many have communicated to me that should blow their mind, like how cool evolutionary theory is. <laughs> so you touched a little bit on sort of the gist of my question and why we invited you on. Because like I said, I don't, I don't want to talk to you as a means of exploitation. I, but I was at a high school football game at the beginning of the semester, uh, Central High School where my kids go to school, was playing a local high school, Bryant High School. And there was apparently someone in the parking lot who had a gun. I don't think they were brandishing it. There wasn't anything that was apparently an imminent threat, but there was security there. They got arrested. Word traveled through the crowd. What I saw from my side was the crowd on the other side. It looked like a fight had happened and people started running in a variety of directions. And then you start hearing people say gun, gun. And everybody, football teams bolted one direction. 
the band and the auxiliary bolts another direction. People were falling over each other because there's only one exit. And some of the kids were having panic attacks and seizures from the fear and the anxiety, right? So what became clear in the aftermath was one, that schools, as you point out, they do have these shooting preparedness drills and exercises they're doing, but circumstances are so contingent, they had planned this for what happens in a classroom, not at a football game where there's only one exit. And then because there was, in this case, no actual shooter, what we saw was an example of the fear that's engendered, the anxiety. And unfortunately, I don't have an elegant question, but given what you just said about your own levels of anxiety, I wonder, what are you saying now to students? What do we say to students about dealing with the anxiety and the stress and the pressure this is creating in our classrooms and in our society? Is there an answer to that? Yeah, I, I mean, I have no idea what we say to them. I'm, I'm, I was what my freshman year in high school is when Columbine happened, and that's when all this stuff really started becoming real because school shootings, they weren't really a thing. I mean, they happened, but they're really rare, and Columbine kind of made them real. And so going up through high school and, and, and college, that was always something that I think popped into your mind, especially uh, certain kids would joke about engaging in school shootings. Uh, and at first, nothing would happen. I think that people started to take that much, much more seriously now that kids are getting expelled or, and arrested before even making jokes about stuff like that. But in terms of anxiety being in the classroom, I have no idea. I've got a, you know, I've got an eight-year-old daughter who is growing up in an age where you never know. And it's always been a fear you know, since she started school, that she might experience it, never thinking that it, I could possibly experience it. And it happening to me has just made it all that more real. But I have no, I don't I even have any advice. Like, I just go to the classroom and do what, like, I should do. Um, and I, there, there are times where I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, which one of these students could potentially be the ones to carry it out? But, of course, there's not, a, even if somebody were to do it, there's not a there's nothing that tells you which of the students would be the ones to do it. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know if there is a good answer to it, like how to quell these anxieties that come around because this, all this stuff is super real now because it happens, it's happening, you know, every, every day almost. So you brought it up um, that you have an eight year old daughter uh, and just kind of wondering how this experience has changed your parenting in any way and talking to her and if she's going through drills in her classroom of preparing for an active shooter situation. I don't think they have drills or anything. I don't think it's changed my parenting. Uh, and I say it would have had uh, I not lost my father at an early age. My dad was an alcoholic. He was an abusive husband, not an abusive father in any way. I always say he was a really great daddy, but he was a really terrible father mm. and a really terrible husband. And if, if I learned anything from him, it was to not be that way. And so I've always been very cognizant of the kind of parent that I have been for my daughter. Very, uh, very cognizant of how I talk to her, how I treat her, and the kind of uh, role, the kind of model that I am for her. So I don't think it's changed my parenting. I've never taken being a father for granted. I've taken lots of other things for granted, but I've never taken that for granted. And had I not had the earlier experiences in my life, I don't. I think it would have fundamentally changed how I approach things. But as it is now, no, I think that it hasn't informed my parenting. It makes me terrified every time she goes to school. Um, but other than that, yeah. So along those lines, do you or would you recommend even having the conversation with students on the first day about what you would do if a if there was a shooter? Is that something you now do 
or would you even recommend it given that there's so much variation in that? I don't know. And this is something that I, this is a conversation I had with Mike Cepet, who I'm uh, TAing for this semester. And he very, very understanding and, and attentive. And he asked, he's like, hey, is this something that you want to address in the class? Like, you want to address that this is an experience that you've had? And um, my response to him was, I, I don't really care. I, I don't mind talking about it. It's cathartic for me to talk about it. I don't want to forget what happened. Um, I think it's an injustice to, to the experiences of all the people involved in their families and the rest of the country to, to forget this. Uh, and students are going to, students Google their professors, they Google their, they Google, you know, their TAs and stuff. And if you Google me, if you're talking to Adam Johnson Anthropology, it's all, it's all stuff about the shooting in my, in my blog, which has stuff about the shooting. So the students will figure it out if they're, if, if they want to figure it out. Um, but in terms of talking about it, like, I don't even know how you could bring that up in a way that wasn't traumatic to students that hadn't even experienced it before. Maybe students that don't, aren't thinking about, you know, this could potentially happen here because it could all of a sudden now, every time they walk into the classroom, like, oh gosh, is this a possibility today? Is it going to happen? Is it going to happen today? And it, that's, uh, that kind of sucks. I was sitting out, my partner uh, and I were sitting out at UTSA one day and there was a thing going on out in the Sombria and like I asked her a question, I was like, it's scary, like being out here and thinking, but is it weird that like, I'm, when I'm seeing this, I'm thinking about not like, what if this happens, but when this happens mm. again, like these kinds of shootings in this space and UTSA is like a, you can carry guns on the campus. They have to be concealed. So every time I walk on the campus, I just assume every student has a gun in their backpack because it's legal. Uh, mm -hmm. And I had to do a training that tells me like the carry laws on campus uh, and there are signs all over office doors saying like you can't bring a gun into my office. But still, like that's something that I like have to engage with every single day on the campus. And the students know that stuff. So I don't know. I don't even know how to talk about it. It's just that part of being here in Texas has really blown me away. Given that change, obviously, of environment that, you know, open carry state. How are you managing since the shooting and then getting back into work and then being in a state where, I mean, it doesn't mean that the chances are increased, but it's very much in your face. How do you manage it? I try to be rational about it. That helps a little bit. I don't know if I manage it so much. I, there are things that I, like I have responsibilities mm -hmm. and I focus on making sure that I'm, I'm, I'm meeting those responsibilities. But, you know, I love to go trail running. And this was even true in Charlotte before we came to San Antonio. Like running on the trail every, I mean, I hate to say this, but every like youngish white guy that I run by, I'm like, is he going to pull out a gun and shoot me in the back when I run past him? And that's every single time. And that's an awful way to think about people because I've always been this very, uh, I always give people the benefit of the doubt. Even when people are jerks, they generally don't intend to be jerks. But, uh, but no, that's, that's the first thing that pops into my head. It's, it's very much in my face now. And that's every time I come onto campus and I see, especially students I haven't seen before, because um, I'm generally seeing like the same people from day to day, even if just walking around campus. I do have that thought like, oh my gosh, is, could he be, you know, the person that does it here? Uh, I, that's a really awful way to think about people in the world. But I mean, that's just the first thought that comes to my mind. Now I reflect on that and it, it, I think that helps a lot. But yeah, I mean, it's in my face. It's, it's just something that I just take step by step and day by day. Um, so you, you mentioned that, and I know this will be sort of the last question in a, in a way to, to wrap it up, but you mentioned that when people 
Google your name, this comes up. You mentioned Riley. What were the names of the students who were killed? Those are the ones who we, we also want to remember. Yeah, so Riley and Reed are the two, the two students that got killed. They were both on the same team. Only two people on that team that showed up that day, which kind of makes sense. They were the most engaged students, like some of the most engaged students in the class period. And unfortunate that their engagement, you know, played a role in, in, in what happened. So Riley and Reed, great, great students, great voices in the class. So we want to remember those people who, who we've lost and we want to thank you. And I know you're active on social media. If you want interaction, it does sound like it's catharsis, but do you want to share your Twitter handle or let people know how they can, do you want to stay private? That's, that's sort of up to you. No, I mean, I have my, my Facebook is private. That's where most of my private stuff happens. My Twitter exists as my public persona. Um, so my Twitter is at Anthropology365. It's the same as my website, which is Anthropology365.com. Well, we want to thank you for, for putting your process out there. You have already made a contribution to how we're thinking about these issues. And we want to thank you for coming on the podcast today, for talking about something that I imagine it's hard because it's hard for me to talk about this. Kara, do you have any, any other comments or questions? I don't. Uh, I mean, these are stories that I think most people will only read about either in your blog or from, you know, third or fourth sources. And so getting it from you directly and hearing about the process and the experience uh, and the long lasting effects, I think is very powerful. So thank you for being willing to share. Thanks for having me on. So I've been Chris. You can find me on Twitter, Chris underscore L-Y. And I'm Kara. You can find me at Kara Akabak. And we are the Sausage of Science for the Human Biology Association. Thank you to Caroline Owens for editing and making us sound somewhat coherent most of the time. And please like us, share us, and rate us. And thank you all so much for listening.